This morning we continue our study of the book of 2 Corinthians. Today we find ourselves in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and I'm going to be focusing on verses 12 through verse 6 in chapter 3. That's found on page 965 in the Bibles that are provided for you there in the rows, uh, and it will also be projected on the screen behind me. Second Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a, frag a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not in ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is, the, such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Let us pray together. Lord, we commit ourselves to this time of hearing from your word. Lord, we pray for open hearts and minds. Lord, we pray that you would illuminate our minds through the work of your spirit as your word is proclaimed. Lord, I pray for help in preaching your word. Lord, give clarity and understanding. Give us openness and a hunger for you. For our good and for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years back, I read a book which I would encourage to anyone involved in church ministry to read. It's called Liberating the Ministry from the Success Syndrome, written by Kent Hughes. I read it during one of my trips down to uh, the Bahamas to teach. And uh, as you know, on those trips, uh, the classes are at night. And so prep time was every day, all day. And it was a, a lot of time to reflect, not just to focus on the classes that I'd be teaching in the evening, 
but to plan for ministry here at New Hope and, and also just a, a time of spiritual reflection. I always enjoyed those times down. And, and this particular book, which I found in the library there, but also had a copy of at home, I just never bothered to pick up. So I began to read this, and, and it really caused me to begin to question my understanding of, of what it meant to be successful as a pastor. I mean, we can all relate to the temptation to want to be successful in the eyes of the world. So, so what would a, a successful church look like under those settings? Well, it would have to be a, a church that is large in number, right? That means successful. A, a, a church that is financially secure. Well, that, that's successful, right? Or, or a church that has a lot of programs, baptisms every Sunday. And again, there's nothing wrong in and of these things if God should, should bless in that way. But, but I began to recognize that I was not immune from having a, a faulty view of what it meant to be successful in ministry. And, and living in the country that we live in, I, I think it's even easier to be influenced in that way because what do we value as Americans those who have made their way the the American dream is 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 this picture of the self-made man or woman who has worked their way up to the head of corporation and they and they have all the resources that they want or, or need and again hard work is good and if, if the Lord blesses that's a good thing but we have to have a different measure of success for faithfulness as brothers and sisters in Christ, as children of God. That's true of how we look at ministry in the church, and it should be true of our understanding of our lives, whether you work in the ministry or whether you work in the marketplace. What does it mean to be successful in the eyes of God? And I would say, brothers and sisters, that the definition is, is really very simple, simple. And that is one of faithfulness. Faithfulness. Faithfulness where God has us in what God has called us to do. So what does faithfulness look like? Well, clearly, ordering our lives according to the word of God clearly seeking to love others with the love that we have received from God. In short, it's looking to glorify God in all that we do. Now, it's a very simple definition, but as we think about how it plays out in our lives, it's truly comprehensive, is it not? If I'm concerned with honoring God with my leisure time, then that's going to affect how I view those opportunities that God gives. If I'm going to seek to honor God in my business deals or, or, or ventures, I'm going to go about those things in a way that reflects that I'm not just doing it with an eye to the bottom line, but also to the ultimate glory of God in how I do it. It's true of teachers, it's true of preachers, all of us, brothers and sisters. Well, here in 2 Corinthians, we've 
seen the Apostle Paul under attack. Under attack considering or concerning whether or not he was trustworthy. We saw in 1 Corinthians that he was under attack concerning his authority as an apostle, and we see, and we'll see more of that later in 2 Corinthians, and, and even hints of it this morning. The apostle Paul did not line up in the eyes of those in Corinth as someone who was successful in ministry. And there were false teachers who were there who were stoking the fire. And here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we find Paul still in the middle of his defense of these charges against him. We've seen over the past few weeks that he's approached this from a couple of different angles. Two weeks ago, the Apostle Paul made the, made the point that clearly his conscience was clear concerning his ministry to the Corinthians. Before God, he was ready to be judged concerning how he related to them. Last week, he approached it from the perspective of the love that he had for them. A love that we see described even more fully in this passage. But also here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through chapter 3, verse 6, we see Paul describing the gospel ministry. Faithfulness in the ministry that he's been called to. And brothers and sisters, I think there are principles here that, that we should learn and apply in our efforts as a church to be faithful in the ministry that we have been called to as the church, to glorify God through our worship, to, to, to be faithful in our proclamation of the gospel and our support of ministries that proclaim the gospel around the world, to be faithful in our homes and individually. These are things that we are called to as followers of Christ. John Calvin has a great quote concerning the importance of the gospel in the lives of Christians. It says, The gospel is not a doctrine of the tongue, simply something to be talked about, but of life. It cannot be grasped by reason and memory only, but is fully understood when it possesses the whole soul and penetrates to the inner recesses of the heart. Isn't that a great description of the effects of the gospel on our lives? It's, it's not just something that we know with our minds and that we can recite to others, although we need to know it and we need to recite it, but when we understand it, it consumes us. The love of God in Christ Jesus who gave himself for us, that we would not be condemned, but we would be adopted into the kingdom of God. We become sons and daughters of God. This is the gripping reality of our lives as followers of Christ. If we are, if we are numb to this, then we must check our spiritual pulse, brothers and sisters. This is a, a reality, this is a, a truth that should permeate everything about us. 
And we see this reality, this truth, permeating everything about the life of the Apostle Paul as he describes the gospel ministry in these verses. This morning we're going to, to, to tackle this passage really under three main themes. First of all, we're going to consider the ministry as defined by the Apostle Paul. Secondly, we're going to consider the ministry validated. And finally, the ministry empowered. And it's my prayer that we don't just look at these verses as it relates to who we are as a corporate body, but these truths would also impact us individually as well. May God strengthen his church through his word this day, I pray. The ministry defined, chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Again, this is one of Paul's biographical moments here. He says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being, being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Now again, keep in mind, brothers and sisters, that, that, that we are in a section where Paul is defending and explaining himself why he changed his plans when it, as it related to his return to Corinth. Just a background for those who may have not been here the past couple of weeks. The Apostle Paul had, had written 1 Corinthians. He, he visited. When he got there, he was publicly opposed it was a bad visit for Paul. And, and as he leaves, rather than coming immediately back to deal with these issues, he decides to, to write what is known as his severe letter to, to call the church to action, to, to repent of their sin. Rather than coming back for a face-to-face -face second painful visit, he wanted his next visit to be one that was joyful. We saw that last week. And so, 2 Corinthians, he, he's received the good news that on the whole, the church has responded favorably, favorably to his correction. In verses 12 and 13, Paul says that he, he was in Troas and, 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 and searching for Titus. His search for Titus, as we have learned already, that Titus was where? In Corinth. Titus was in Corinth and he was hoping to, in Titus's trip back, to, to, to encounter him. I'll, I'll show a map in just a moment uh, to help you see what's where. But, but he wanted to encounter Titus because he had sent this letter. He wanted to, to hear how things had gone with his letter. Titus, you've been in Corinth. They've read the letter. How did they respond? Did they repent? Are they, are they growing? Or are they doing what's right before God? Can you not... Just sense Paul's love and anticipation for the church? Listen, if, if the Apostle Paul was just about proclaiming the gospel and not about 
the people whom he proclaimed the gospel to, then he would have hung out in Troas and, and preached the gospel. He says that, that God opened a door of opportunity for him. But he was so concerned about this church that he had ministered to and that he cared for that, that, that he could think of nothing else until he got this update from Titus. And that truly is a, a picture of faithful ministry. Because ministry is about the message that we proclaim, but it is also about loving the people that we proclaim the message to. We see it from the Apostle Paul beautifully. It makes me laugh to, to hear people paint a picture of Paul that, that seems uncaring or unconcerned about people when throughout his letters you see over and over again this heart he has to see people find their joy and their fulfillment in Christ. We just finished Philippians back in the fall. Do you remember that? Over and over again, Paul pointing them not just to who they were in Christ, but who they would be in Christ at his return. And he calls them to stand firm and to be joyful. Here's a very muddy map, which kind of describe our, helps us see where things are. Seriously, I... I literally tested this before. Ah, oh, there we go. Okay. So, Corinth. I was about to throw this thing. All right. Corinth, Troas. Okay. Paul is making the loop around to check, and before getting back to Corinth, he's hoping to intersect Titus, who would have been traveling back here. That's where they expected to meet. So you see this. This is major traveling, even to check on the churches. Okay. Paul didn't do these things half-heartedly. He was committed to the ministry, not just in Corinth, but to all the churches. Okay. And the lines there are actually a picture of his third missionary journey, in case you're wondering. All right. So here he is. And Jerusalem is, is way over here. Okay. So this is, our excuse me, way down here. Uh, so this is a major endeavor for Paul to visit, visit again. And so he wants to be sure that when he gets there, it's going to be ultimately for their benefit. That makes sense, right? You travel halfway around the known world at the time to meet and care for people. You want to you wanna go in as equipped and in a position to be as much eternal good to them as you could possibly be. And so Paul was committed. His very life, not just, a, we've, we've talked often about his physical sacrifice and all that he endured, imprisonment, beating, shipwreck, all those things, sickness for the sake of taking the gospel around the world. But just in terms of, of sheer miles traveled, what does that tell us about how the apostle Paul valued the gospel and his relationship with Christ? You know, we could make that trip in a matter of hours in an airplane. We're talking weeks and months for the Apostle Paul. That, that, that tells us something. He, he, he was more than willing to be a little inconvenienced for the good of the churches and the spread of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we should embrace that example as well. 
ministry defined, verses 14 through 17. As we move on to verse 14, we, we, we see that verse 14 marks the beginning of, a, of an extended description of Paul's ministry that, that actually runs all the way into chapter 7. I love the Apostle Paul because the Apostle Paul went on his rabbit trails unashamedly. Okay, where we picked up and, and at the end of, of chapter 2 here actually was Paul restarting his narrative from a rabbit trail that he had jumped on in chapter 2. He actually started way back in chapter 1 with this autobiographical information about why he had changed his plans and built his case and all that stuff. And, and intermingled, you have him running down these little trails. It's inspired by God, obviously. It's scripture. So that's more than we can say from most of my rabbit trails, but, but, but the reality is, is that Paul had truth to impart, and he didn't want it to be just about his experience. He's defending his experience, but he's also imparting important truths about what it means to be faithful to God. So, so we're going to be in the midst of this rabbit trail, really, for the, for the next several chapters. Verse 14, Paul writes, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. We covered this a moment ago. Paul's, uh, excuse me, up to, up to this point in 2 Corinthians, Paul has been describing our, our, his ministry that had been centered on the trials that he faced. That's what he focuses on. Way back in chapter 1, Paul uh, writes about thinking that they were going to die in the ministry. It's been kind of a, a, of a negative tone, right? You guys remember that? He, he says uh, in chapter 1, beginning of verse 8, he says, for, brothers, we do not, or for we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So Paul's picture of his ministry has been pretty severe up to this point, right? The, the illustrations and the, and the snippets that he's given of his life have been about the trials that they faced. And, and he continues here. But, but in verse 14, he does something interesting. He, he uses this image of, of what was called the Roman triumph to illustrate the ministry of the gospel. Now, what the Roman triumph was, it was, a, it was a, but what we would call a parade, basically. And it was a parade that was given for Roman military generals who had been successful in battle. And what would happen, uh, really, when they first started this, they, they would either be led through, the, the general would lead the procession through the city, and he would be in a chariot, either pulled by horses or elephants. How cool is that? People stop and look when you see elephants pulling a trailer through town, right? 
And, and so here's the general in all his glory receiving the, the cheers of the people and the army marching behind and this great spectacle. And, and part of that was the burning of incense and the, and the whole city would smell of, of, of the victory. And also in that procession would be those that had been defeated in battle as the spoils of war. Now, there has been much debate as to who Paul is referencing when he talks about being led in triumph. Some say that, that, that Paul is talking about, no, Paul's talking about he and the apostles being like the, the generals that are led down the, who are leading the procession down the street. Thanks be to God that in the midst of all these trials, we're the victors. And there's certainly the case to be made for that. But others hold to the view that, no, Paul is saying, listen, when it comes from the, from the worldly perspective, we're like the prisoners in the back. We're the ones who are suffering for the sake of the gospel. We're the ones who are giving our lives for the sake of the gospel. It's an interesting contrast, isn't it? But I think that Paul may actually have both in mind as we continue to consider the context of the verse. What does he say when he talks about the fragrance? He says, for those who are being saved, we're, we're, we're the, the fragrance of life. But those who are perishing, we're the, we're the fragrance of death. That, 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 that's an important distinction, is it not? The ministry of the gospel and even the, the, the ministry of our lives should spread the fragrance of Christ everywhere. And Paul makes the case here that, 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 that the fragrance truly is perceived differently between believers and unbelievers. The gospel doesn't change. It's the response that shapes people's perception. He's, he, we know the gospel doesn't have an odor. He's, he's speaking figuratively, but it's a very powerful image, is it not? You know what it's like to be speeding down the freeway and to pass a skunk, don't you? That's a smell that stays with you a while, even when the skunk has been in the rearview mirror. Or worse yet, here in lovely Lancaster County, when the fields are brown with preparation. It's a smell that stays with you. But we also know what it's like to, to, to drive past something that smells great. I like to drive past the steakhouse very slowly with my window down. It's a pleasing aroma. A vegetarian may not think so. But we know that image, right? And, and Paul says, listen, the, the ministry of the gospel does the same thing in people's lives. To, to those who are responding in faith and who are being saved, it's the greatest smell on earth. And, and we smell like it because we represent Christ. But to those who are perishing, those who have rejected the gospel, we smell like death. They think we're foolish. We're like the prisoners in the back of the parade being led to our execution. 
And so I have to ask the question, brothers and sisters, before I go any further. What do you smell like in this world? To the believers in your life, do they smell Jesus on you? Do the unbelievers in your life think you're a fool for what you believe because they smell Jesus on you? This goes far beyond perfume and deodorant to the very flavor of our lives. And that only can be cultivated as we grow in our faith and as we are faithful and as we desire to know him better brothers and sisters we must never forget that the ministry of the gospel is truly a matter of life and death this is not about differing opinions it's about truth and unbelief truth and deception, life, death, light, darkness. Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to God. It is through His perfect life, His sacrificial death, His resurrection from the grave that we are restored to God. There is no plan B. And that is why Paul traveled around the known world. That is why he suffered. That is why he and the other apostles gave their very lives in the effort to take the gospel to, to, to all who would hear. Because they understood that there is no other way. And to lose it all, taking that message to the world, and to give one's life in that effort was gain. Because it far surpasses any achievement in this life. In verse 16, we see that the, the ministry of the gospel is, is not just man's endeavor, but it is dependent on the work of God. Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? We can't do it ourselves. We need God's hand upon us. In verse 17, we see that the, the, the ministry of the gospel is, is something that is carried out for the glory of God. Paul says, listen, in verse 17, we're not in this for the money. We're not in this for the fame. We have been set apart by God in the sight of God to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the ministry. Unashamedly, as a church, we do a lot of things to help people out. We support missionaries. We work at a food bank. We do benevolence for those in need in the community. And all of those things are good things. But we make no excuses or conditions for the fact that as we do these things we are looking for a door of opportunity to preach the gospel to share the gospel and 
may that never change. And while it is good and right and loving for us to, 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 make temporal, to meet temporal needs, we must also always seek to engage the greatest need, which is eternal. The need to be reconciled to God. Brothers and sisters, that is the ministry. So what will we smell like to others moving forward? In chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we see the ministry validated. Paul continues, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Now, quickly, Paul is, is referencing what, what, what would be a practice for an unknown preacher or teacher going to a, a church to teach. He would, if that person was unknown to the people of the congregation, how would they know that they could be trusted, right? And so usually a, a letter of commendation would be, would be given by someone who was familiar with the church so that that teacher would be received and the message would be trusted. Remember, most of the New Testament is written to deal with false teaching. It, it was not a small problem. It was a huge problem. And so Paul's picking up on this idea that these guys knew him. <laughs> you, you don't need another letter of reference. I brought the gospel to you. <laughs> and that's his point. He doesn't need to be introduced to them. That's what that word commended means in the Greek. It describes a, an introduction to be made familiar with someone. You know me. You don't need to be reintroduced to me. Now again, remember, some in Corinth were doing more than questioning Paul's trustworthiness concerning whether or not he should have come when he said he wanted to come, but then he didn't come, but then later he did come. He said... There, there's more going on here. They're questioning his legitimacy as an apostle. These were deep era issues in the life of the church, and Paul is reminding him that the one who writes them now is the same one who preached the gospel to them for the very first time. And so Paul makes the point that the very fact that the church existed was the proof of his apostleship. You're, you're, you're questioning my authority. You're questioning my faithfulness to you. But the very fact that there is a church in Corinth is, is the proof of who Paul was. So, so Paul is making this very personal. His ministry was validated in, in the Corinthian church but because the church existed. It was there because of him. God had used his preaching the gospel to, to bring about converts and, and enough converts to, to, to form a local body of believers. So he was faithful in his proclamation of the truth. Paul's ministry was also validated in his unwavering love for the Corinthians, even as he was being attacked by some in the congregation. He, he didn't just pick up his toys and go home. He came back to, to deal with them and, and encourage them and to build them up in their faith. 
Paul continues in verses 3 through 6 that his ministry was validated by the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit among them. So Paul says, listen, the, you are the proof. Your response to my ministry is the proof. The ongoing work of the Spirit among you is the proof. That you should listen and apply what he has to say moving forward. Paul's addressing their questions concerning his fitness for ministry in these verses. Paul continues and, and begins to really, in, in verses 3 through 6, to describe the ministry empowered by God. He writes, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, we find Paul really contrasting two focuses here. First of all, the, the, the focus of the Corinthians, their focus is on what? Him, and, and whether or not he is truly an apostle, whether or not he is fit to teach and lead them when he comes back. But he contrasts that with, with where their focus should have been. The focus on God, on the one who was obviously at work building the church in Corinth. Paul is reminding them who they are in Christ. He says, I don't need to claim to be sufficient to you. God is doing the work among you. He says, you don't need a letter of commendation from me because you are the letter. You have been saved by Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Makes no, he alludes to tablets of stone versus tablets of the human hearts in verse 3. And that's a reference really to the law of God. And we find this again in verse 6, which was given to Moses on what? Tablets of stone. Contrasting that with the ministry of Christ, which brings life. What is the purpose of the law of God? Well, first and foremost, it's to reveal to us our sin before a holy God. There's a lot more than 10, but the 10 sum it up. Are we idolaters? Are we liars? Do we have adulterous thoughts? Are we adulterers? Do we covet those things that do not belong to us? And on and on and on. Yes, in some way we have been guilty of almost every one. And the purpose for that is to show us our need for the one who came and, and fulfilled that law so that all who turn to him in faith would be redeemed, forgiven, restored to God. Paul is giving them the gospel. His competency was in question, and his defense is clear that his competency comes from God alone. Verses 5 and 6. 
This is not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. God has placed us here to serve you, Paul writes. And the same is true today, brothers and sisters. Talent, giftedness, winsomeness, all of those things are worthless apart from the Spirit at work when God's Word is proclaimed. Those things are used by God. Those things certainly make us who we are. But if God is not at work, then ultimately it will not work. Now we need to keep in mind the the, the influence of the false teachers in Corinth as well. They had taken the focus off the work of Christ and salvation and they had placed it squarely on themselves. Remember what we've learned from 1 Corinthians. Not only the existence of, of factions but also the unhealthy obsession with spiritual gifts and, and, and who filled what role in the church. The focus wasn't on the God who saved, but on their individual experience of church. You even saw it in something as, as, as that, that should have been beautiful, like the Lord's Supper, the division that existed there. And that is what the ministry of false teaching does. It, it minimizes the work of Christ in reconciling us to God in favor of emphasizing the work of man in some way. Even by perverting something like faith. This was true in Corinth and, and, and it is true today as well. It is a true danger in contemporary Christianity that we are, are, are being led away with, by false teachers to take our eyes off what Christ has done and focus our lives completely on ourselves. Many of the best sellers in contemporary Christian writing do just that. Not all. There are many good books out there, but there are many that do that very thing. And we must be on guard. Not only that, brothers and sisters, we must insist. We must insist on faithfulness to the word of God. You must insist on everything being this preached from this pulpit, whether it be by me or someone else, that it be faithful to the word of God. You must insist on that. You must insist on that in, in your relation to how you minister to and, and lead things like family worship and care for one another. We must insist on being true to the Word of God. We must be faithful to it, brothers and sisters. So what about us? What about us? Well, first of all, we must never forget that no matter what forms our ministries may take, we must be motivated by sincere love and a desire to see God glorified. To do these things absent of love is, is to be a, a, a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal, to borrow Paul's words from 1 Corinthians. Motives matter. Means matter. The way we do things matter. 
We must always remember that God's word must be emphasized and never compromised as the foundation of our ministry. We need a firm foundation to stand on. We must always remember that God is the source of salvation and we must depend on him for ministry to truly be successful. This should drive us to our knees, brothers and sisters. We must remember that our testimony as a church and individually matters in the eyes of the world. What do we smell like? And finally, we must prioritize our spiritual growth and faithfulness in seeking to know God more deeply and to find our true delight in Him. If you missed the men's breakfast yesterday, then you missed a, a, a great devotional from Brother Dave Mueller. And we were talking about that very thing. The delight we find in God and how that drives us to love others well and for greater faithfulness. We must prioritize our spiritual growth and faithfulness. It reminds me of a of a quote that I'll close with by John Piper. We're beginning and ending with John's this morning. Piper writes, The mind was designed not to defend what we want, but to discover what is ultimately true, which should shape our wants and satisfy them more deeply with God. The purpose of the mind is not to rationalize subjective preferences but to recognize objective reality and to help the heart revel in God. Now that's a great definition of how we should use our minds and what our minds are for, but contrast that with what we're tempted to use our minds with. It's a great shift of perspective. God made our minds to delight in what is true. God made our minds to take joy in who he is. It's time for us to take back control of our minds, brothers and sisters. Clinging to Paul's promise in Philippians that we can do all things through him who gives us strength. May we take back our minds for the glory of God, brothers and sisters. Let us pray.